Good morning again and welcome. We are grateful that you're here today. It's a beautiful day. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. If you're visiting, we want you to know how much we appreciate you coming our way. Please come again. And if you're looking for a church home, we would love to have you come and be a part of the work here. We're thankful for all the good things that are going on, and we hope and pray that much good will continue to come forth. A lot of activities, and so we hope and pray that you can find a place of service right here. We're going to be looking at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This will be our lesson text for the hour. I do want to encourage you to come back tonight. I know that tonight, as we're all well aware, it's Super Bowl night, and so there's probably a pull to stay home, watch the game, but I want to encourage you to come tonight to be a part of our worship service. We're going to be talking this evening about Abraham and Sarah and their great faith, and so we'd love to have you come back tonight. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We're going to be looking at those verses in a moment or two as we think about what the record says concerning Jesus and His life here upon this earth. There have been a lot of people down through the ages that have questioned the sonship, the deity of Christ. There are no doubt many people in the world today, they would agree with us that Jesus was a good man. Some would even say that He was a tremendous teacher. Others have called Him the Master Teacher. There are no doubt many traits that attract people to Christ. There are a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of things that He said, that people down through the ages have appreciated, admired, and the Lord Jesus Christ stands out among the human family as someone very special. But while all of the things that I mentioned a moment ago are true, ultimately we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus as presented in Scripture is the Son of God. And so John provides us with what we might call a thesis for his gospel narrative. That thesis statement really points us in the direction of Christ and the great miracles that He performed and the purpose behind those miracles. The text says many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God, and that you might have life through His name. So, in our study today, we're going to be looking at John chapter 20, and we're going to be focusing our minds on the importance of Jesus, the Son of the living God. We might ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be? Someone were to ask you, what do you think about the Christ? How would you answer? So we're going to be thinking about that in our study today as we look at John chapter 20. I do very quickly want to mention something. I know that many of you have been involved behind the scenes doing a lot of things, and there are a lot of good things that go on here on a regular basis that are not as visible as some works. And I want you to know how much we appreciate all the good things that are going on and all the, the time and effort behind the scenes that is going on to make Olive Branch what we might call a working congregation. 
And so I just want to say thank you to those who are involved. If you're looking for an opportunity, I would encourage you to talk to the elders, talk to our deacons. They're doing a lot of great things, and we would love to have you come and share with that. So I started today, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Again, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He is who He claimed to be? I want to first begin by just profiling the Savior. I think sometimes it's helpful for us to step back and to remember what the Scripture has to say about the Christ. So let's just talk for a moment or two about some facts, the truth about Jesus. Here's what John said concerning the Christ. Number one, he stresses the deity of Christ. Now we might begin by talking about the pre-incarnate or the pre-existent Christ. And so John begins his gospel narrative by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Here the Apostle John identifying for us that Jesus is God. In other words, He is on a plane equal to God the Father. Three members of the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And John here emphasizing the eternal nature of the Christ. The fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus has always existed. We catch glimpses of the Christ, the second member of the Godhead, in the Old Testament. He is identified as the angel of Jehovah. You remember, for example, Micah the prophet talked about the Christ. He said, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting. So that's the one we're talking about, the one who is everlasting. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 called him the everlasting father. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in His pre-incarnate state. But then John also alludes to the fact that Jesus took upon Himself human flesh. And so now we think about the incarnate Christ. John said, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The psalmist back in Psalm 40, David in the long ago, foretold of a body being prepared for the second member of the Godhead to dwell in. He said, a body you have prepared for me. The Hebrew writer quotes that in Hebrews chapter 10. That body created, formed in the womb of Mary. And the angel said to Joseph that that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So, the Lord Jesus Christ. His father was God. His mother was Mary. So he was fully God and fully man. Do you remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And then he said, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man. There's a reference right there to the incarnation. The fact that Jesus existed with the Father. He was willing to empty Himself, divest Himself of some of His 
attributes, the glory that He enjoyed with the Father from time eternal, take upon Himself human flesh for the purpose of going to the cross. So number one, we think about the truth as it relates to Jesus. But then secondly, what about the testimony about Jesus? John the Baptist is pictured in Scripture as the forerunner to the Christ. Isaiah in chapter 40 foretells of the one who would come and point people in the direction of Christ. For example, in John chapter 1, John said, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. John the Baptist was interested in pointing toward the kingdom of God and the Christ so that people might come to understand, believe in, and obey, embrace the Son Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 1, verse 29, here's what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A little bit later, John talks about seeing the, the Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove, remaining upon Him. And John said, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God, in verse 34. So here's John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Christ, acknowledging that Jesus is indeed God's only Son. In chapter 1 as well, we read about a fellow by the name of Nathaniel. And you remember Philip had been encouraged by Jesus to follow him. Philip then went out and found Nathanael. And he said, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and prophets said, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And do you remember what Nathanael said? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip then responded by saying, Come and see. And then the record indicates that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him. Jesus said, Behold, an Israelite in whom is no guile or deceit. Nathanael asked the question, How do you know me? And he said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, he said, I saw you. Nathanael then said, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So here we have testimony, not just from John the Baptist, but also from Nathanael. In chapter 6, Jesus had been talking about how He is the bread of life, that living bread that came down from heaven. And the Bible says that many of His disciples said, this is a hard saying, a difficult saying, who can understand it? So many of those people began to go back. They were no longer willing to follow Jesus. Then Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them, will you also go away? You remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So now you have the testimony of John the Baptist. You've got the testimony of Nathaniel, and also the testimony of Peter. And Peter, you remember, had acknowledged to Jesus in the northern region of Palestine that they had come to believe that He was indeed who He claimed to be, that is, the very Son of God. So we have the truth about Jesus, the testimony about Jesus, but what about the testimony of Jesus? Don't you think we ought to hear what He has to say in the matter? Now, John writes in chapter 20 
many other signs truly did Jesus. We're talking about Jesus here. And the purpose of the book is to produce faith. So what about Jesus? Did He believe that He was indeed the Son of Almighty God? I mentioned a moment ago the fact that Jesus has always existed, His pre-incarnate state. In John 8, verse 58, here's what the Lord said, Before Abraham was, I am. That says something about Jesus and the fact that He is acknowledging that He is that eternal, self-existent One. But what about Him? Did He claim to be the Son of God? You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus had a lengthy conversation with a Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well? And Jesus, during the course of their conversation, encouraged her to go and call her husband. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times, the man you now have is not your husband. Immediately, she changed the subject and began talking about the place of worship. And Jesus pointed out to her that people would no longer worship on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshiped, nor in Jerusalem. But rather, the time would come when people would worship God in spirit and in truth. And here's what the lady said. I know that when the Messiah comes, He'll tell us all things. Verse 26 of chapter 4 of the Bible says, Jesus identified Himself as the Messiah. In chapter 9 of John's Gospel, Jesus had healed a man that had been born blind. And there was a lot of bantering back and forth between the Jews and this man that had received his sight. So a little bit later, matter of fact, down toward the end of the text, you recall Jesus finds this man. And he asked him, he asked him this question, do you believe in the Son of God? And his response was, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? He said, it is he who is talking to you. In other words, I'm the one. And the Bible says he believed in him and worshipped him. Did Jesus believe that he was God's only begotten son? Yes, he did. So, the testimony by the Lord Jesus himself. He would say in John chapter 10, I and the Father are one. Again, emphasizing his deity. Now, there is a second thought I want to call attention to. First, we profile the Savior. But secondly, there is a proliferation of signs or miracles. There are seven recorded signs in John's Gospel. If I recall correctly, there are about 34 specific signs attributed to Jesus in the four Gospel narratives. Jesus did many more signs than that, but those are the ones that are specifically recorded. But when you come to John's gospel, John has seven I am statements in addition to seven very specific signs. And there was a purpose behind that. Now again, John said many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But he said these are written. So what about those seven very specific signs or miracles? 
Now, a miracle would be defined as extraordinary, above what we might call natural law. So in chapter 2, you remember the very first sign that Jesus performed was at a marriage ceremony in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother had instructed the people who were present on that occasion. She said, whatever He says for you to do, you do it. That's a great lesson in and of itself. But in that context, Jesus turned water into wine. And if you read the record, the quality of that wine was incredible. But the Bible says this was the beginning of miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And listen to this, and manifested His glory. And His disciples did what? The text says they believed in Him. So what then was the purpose behind the sign, the miracles? To produce faith. In chapter 4 of John's Gospel, we have a record of a nobleman's son. A nobleman would have been a royal official, a dignitary. His son was sick at the point of death. And so he reaches out to Jesus on behalf of his son. Bear in mind that Jesus is separated some, well, a little less than 20 miles from this man's son. And yet Jesus healed this man, showing his power over distance. He didn't have to be face to face with this young fellow to heal him. He just healed him. In chapter 5, John talks about a man that had been paralyzed for 38 years. Imagine being crippled for almost four decades. And Jesus healed that man. Amazing. In chapter 6, the Lord Jesus was said to have taken five barley loaves and two small fish and fed 5,000 people, somewhere around 5,000 people. I mean, that's astounding, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine being in a crowd of that many people and you have what we might call a sack lunch and you feed everybody? Well, that was Jesus. In that same chapter, we have a picture of Jesus walking on the water, demonstrating His power over natural law. Matter of fact, back in Matthew chapter 8, there's a record of Jesus commanding the winds and the sea to be still. And so, the Lord Jesus had power over nature, didn't He? The record also informs us in chapter 9 that this man that had been born blind, you remember the disciples asking, Who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, Neither this man sinned nor his parents, but that the work of God might be manifest. So Jesus gave sight to a blind man, told him to go dip in the pool of Siloam, and he'd be healed. He went, he dipped, and guess what? He could see. And then the pinnacle of all miracles, chapter 11. You remember, the, you remember what the text says about Lazarus, a friend of Jesus? Lazarus had passed away. He's been dead and buried for four days. His body is already undergoing decomposition. And Jesus acknowledged to Martha and to Mary that He would rise again. They thought He was talking about at the last day. 
But Jesus intended to raise him from the dead at that point in time. So he instructed them to remove the tomb, or rather remove the stone from the mouth of the tomb. They did that, and he called Lazarus forth. So you have seven very specific signs given showing Jesus' power in various realms of life. Chapter 11 demonstrates for us His power over death. You remember the Hebrew writer tells us that when Jesus died, He destroyed Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we've got the prolific signs that Jesus performed while on planet earth. In John chapter 5, verse 36, now we're talking about Jesus, His identity, the fact that He is the Son of God, second member of the Godhead. And here's what the Lord Jesus said about the very signs that He performed, conducted on earth. He said, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus had a heaven-sent mission. He came to conduct the will of Almighty God. In the shadow of the cross, Jesus said, I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work that you've given me to do. So Jesus comes announces His deity to the human family, the testimony of many, many people, His own testimony, the very signs that He did bore witness to Him. So now thirdly, let's think thirdly about the purpose of those signs. Look again at John chapter 20. And listen to what John said again. Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So number one, what about the purpose of this book? If you want to just boil it all down, here's the purpose of John recording these signs, of his very specific gospel narrative. And that is to develop faith in the lives of people. Now, how does faith come? Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So John is saying, look, I have provided this inspired book for one reason. And that is so that it might develop faith in the lives of people. Is faith a demand or requirement? Was Jesus interested in people believing that He was, in fact, the Son of God? Now, again, I know that there are a lot of folks that they have a lot of conclusions about who they think Jesus is and was. You need to understand something. Jesus was a good man. He was a champion for the social injustices of His day. The Lord Jesus was compassionate and kind and loving and all of that. But ultimately, He either was deity or He wasn't. He was either the Son of God or He was a fraud. Which was it? Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus said, except you believe that I am. You'll die in your sins. In other words, unless you come to believe that I am the divine Son of God, you will die in your sins. And he said, if you die in your sins where I am, 
There you cannot come. I said a minute ago, there are a lot of folks, they have a lot of different ideas about the identity of Jesus. And some would say, well, it really doesn't matter. Well, it mattered to Christ. If it mattered to Him, it ought to matter to us. Because what Scripture says is, faith is demanded by Almighty God. What was it the Hebrew writer said, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. We have to have faith in the Lord. Again, go to Caesarea Philippi. And they are in that northern part of Palestine, and Jesus wants to know, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus then asked, but who do you say that I am? You think it was important to Him? Well, what if somebody said, well, you know what, I, I see in Jesus John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the other great prophets of Almighty God. Maybe they saw characteristics of those individuals in Jesus. But Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus then said, blessed are you, Simon of Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. Jesus believed that He was the Son of God. And Jesus said to the people of His day, you have to come to believe in me, or listen, you will die in your sins. It's just, that, it's just that matter of fact. Now there's another thought here. And that is, what about the promise? What about the promise in the book? Well, let's look again and see what Jesus said. First, He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One of whom the prophets of old pointed toward. As Nathaniel said in the long ago, we have found Him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets spoke. So, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Listen. Life is only in Christ Jesus. What about the place of eternal life? There is only one place for eternal life. That's Jesus. That's it. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, John said, This is the record, this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He said, He who has a Son has life, he who has not the Son of God does not have life. Could he be any plainer? And John is the same writer, the apostle. And John is saying, look, you need to understand life is in Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no life outside of Christ. Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Now there are a lot of folks that have this idea but they can do an end around, have a relationship with God without Jesus. Not possible. Can't, can't work that way. Luke said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If you want to be saved, you have to go through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the only answer to sin. That's it. Sin is a problem. Jesus is the answer. His blood do you remember what Paul said, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, salvation is where? It's in Christ Jesus. 
with eternal glory. And the only way that you can get into Christ is by being baptized into Christ. Paul said, we're all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. As many of us have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We die to the love and the practice of sin. We rise to walk in newness of life. So when we step out onto the plains of eternity, is it going to matter whether or not we had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer is an emphatic yes. You can't afford to die outside of Christ. You can't afford to leave this world without Jesus as your Savior. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, I want to be your Savior, but one day He'll be your judge. Once you get out into eternity, He's no longer your Savior, He's your judge. So the question is, will you obey the gospel? Will you come to Christ? Jesus was interested in people following Him. He begged and pleaded with people to come to Him, to live for Him, to become His disciples. So you got the place of eternal life and the promise of eternal life. Could I ask you a question? Of all the things that you possess, of all the treasures that you have in this life, what would you say is your most valuable possession? What's the most valuable thing that you have? Is it material? Would it have to do with maybe a relationship with somebody you love? I mean, what's the most valuable treasure that you have in this life? Can I tell you what the most valuable treasure you have in your life? It's not your automobile. It's not your home. It's not your clothes. It's not the money you have in the bank, the land that you own. None of that. Your most valuable treasure, if you're a child of God, is your deed to heaven. That's it. Paul said that we live in hope of life eternal. Now this isn't hope so, think so. No, this is hope grounded in conviction. The absolute assurance that what God has promised, He will bring to pass. When the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 had talked about how we're not to look at the things which are seen, but rather the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. In chapter 5, verse 1, he said, For we know that if this earthly house, this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. Let me tell you what, Paul believed in the hope of eternal life. And Paul could say in effect, I have my deed to the heavenly city. John wrote, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, Verse 13, that we can know that we have eternal life. Well, how do we know that? If we're living for God, if we've obeyed the gospel, if we're walking according to His will. John said, hereby we do know that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, 1 John 2, verse 3. Can I know that I have eternal life and can I believe in the promises of Almighty God? And the answer, yes. If you don't have eternal life, it's because you have made the decision, you're not interested. Or you've said, not now. But if you're in Christ, you have a deed to heaven. Peter said, 
We have an inheritance. It's incorruptible. It's undefiled. It fades not away. He said it's reserved in heaven for you. Now, maybe you've got reservations tomorrow night to spend some time with the person you love. That's all well and good. When you show up at a certain restaurant and they want to know, do you have reservations? And you say, yes, I do. You give them your name and they take you to your table. As a child of God, to understand that we have a reservation in heaven. But you've got to, you've got to pre-plan that, don't you? You've got to make preparation. You can't just show up and say, I'm here. No, you've got to make preparation in your life. That's why it's so important to understand who Jesus is and to see the necessity of coming to Him by faith and obedience. The Bible says, Though we were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which He suffered. He is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. I want to close by saying this. The Hebrew writer acknowledged in chapter 2, verse 9, that Jesus tasted death for every man. That means He died for you. It means He died for me. It means He died for every single solitary person that's ever lived on planet Earth. And the only way that you can be saved is in Jesus. So the question is, do you believe in Him? And if you say, yes, I believe in the Son of God, the next question is, have you obeyed Him? If you have not obeyed Him, what's keeping you from doing so? What's holding you back? There's got to be a reason. Is it friends, family? Is it you don't know enough? Is it that you're just not ready to make the commitment? I mean, what, there has to be a reason, doesn't there? Now, John has given us his treatise. And John has said, look, these things I've written to you that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Life's in Christ. Life now, life eternal in Christ. That's it. What if you're a child of God and you're not living as you should? You know that you're just not right. Could we pray with you and for you today? Would you not make the decision right now that you've lived in sin, the world, long enough and that you're ready to come home? Jesus is interested in you individually. He has invested in you individually. It would be tragic. It would be the greatest of all tragedies to have the blessings on the table and to walk away from them. You know the beauty of living in this world? We have the freedom of choice, don't we? So when it's all said and done, the choice is yours. Will you come as we stand and sing?